It's, uh, it's great to see you. It's great to see you. Before we go to God's word and hear from him, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a precious gift that you would, that you would speak to us. And then in your kindness and your wisdom and your generosity, that you would have your word preserved for us in this book. Because it is your word, I ask that we'd come to it, not like any other text, not merely as ink on a page, but what it is. You're living an active word that challenges us, that encourages us, that can rebuke us, that points to the place of our redemption, that can alive in our imagination, that can make us steadfast and immovable, that can tenderize our hearts for those around us and put steel in our spines in the face of opposition. Oh, your word can do so much. And yet we need your spirit to apply it. We might even be able to understand the words, but there's no way we could ever live them out apart from your divine help. And so God, I ask that you would send your spirit and help us to to hear your word, to, to consume and consider it with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you grant us a humility as we're bombarded with so many messages throughout the week competing for our allegiance, our affection, our conformity. God, would your word cut through all of those things today that we might sit low beneath it. But what we need more than anything else, what every single person in this need needs more than anything else, no matter how they came in, is that we would leave this time more impressed with what King Jesus has done. So would you make him loud in our songs, in our prayers, in our conversations as we receive communion, and I pray from this sermon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James Boyce, in his commentary on Psalm 129, he begins it by telling this story of Frederick the Great, who was king of Prussia. And in this encounter, uh, King Frederick was talking to his chaplain, and he was, he was basically telling his chaplain to become pretty skeptical of the truth of the Bible. This, he was very influenced by uh, Voltaire, a French philosopher, and so he calls his chaplain in and he says something like this. He says, if your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of very brief proof. So often when I've asked for proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I've been given some enormous volume that I have neither the time nor the disposition to read. If your Bible is really from God, You should be able to demonstrate that fact simply. Forget long arguments. Give me the proof of the Bible's inspiration in a word. So the king is talking to his chaplain, and then the chaplain's response to the thing is just fantastic. He says, he says, your majesty, it is possible for me to answer your request quite literally. I can give you the proof you ask for in a single word. The king looks at his chaplain very skeptically and says, oh, what is this magic word of which you speak? And the chaplain looks calmly back at the king and simply says this, Israel. That might strike you as strange, but let me try to unpack it. James Boyce says it like this, the Jews are the longest enduring distinct ethnic people on the planet. They have been slandered, hated, persecuted, expelled, pursued, and murdered throughout their long existence, but they have survived. If you know anything of the history of God's people, 
goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, this book called Genesis, and a man named Abraham. God came to Abraham and he made a promise to him. He said, oh, Abraham, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm going to make you as numerous as the, 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 the sand by the shore. And so then Abraham, out of his family, as he gave birth to a son and another, and, and then they began to multiply and they began to grow. But then God's people were actually captured they were enslaved in Egypt. And under the heavy hand of, of their Egyptian oppressors, they actually continued to grow. God gave them favor. God intervened. God still protected them, still nurtured them, still cared for them. If you've ever read Exodus, this is where you get the, the, the plagues of frogs and gnats and darkness. And, and God comes and he delivers them with a mighty hand. He brings them out from captivity and he brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. And then he parts the Red Sea. And his people go across. God is still fighting for his people under all of this oppression. Then they end up wandering in this kind of desert wilderness wasteland. God continues to provide water for them. God continues to feed them. I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy, this beautiful little line that after 40 years, right before they were able to go into the land that God had marked out for them, it said something like this, even th their sandals did not wear out. It's like, think about your Birkenstocks, 40 years, wandering in the desert, and they didn't wear out. God was with his people. And then they go into the promised land that God had marked out for them. God gave them cities they didn't build and homes they didn't build and they got to feast on vineyards they didn't plant. But enemies still kept rising up. Enemies within, enemies without. The Assyrians came down in 722 and they ransacked the, the northern part of, of, of Israel and they carried these people out. They just destroyed their cities and carried them off into captivity. And then 150 years later, a Babylonian king came into to Jerusalem and, and into Judea and just leveled the city and leveled the walls and then drug them a thousand miles back to kind of modern day Baghdad. And yet God was still with them. Eventually, they were able to go back to their land, but they were still occupied, the, the Greeks and then the Romans. And then the birth of the church through Christ. And if you look at the history of the church, it's, it's one of facing oppression and, and struggle and opposition, and yet the church continues to thrive. What began as such a, a small band of poor, uneducated, marginalized people it's found in every nook and cranny of the world. Psalm 129 is a story of God's people being consistently beat up, pushed down, carried off, maligned, marginalized, discredited, dismissed, assaulted, messed with, and yet still standing. It's an honest look that the people of God will face opposition. But it's also a really hopeful reminder that in all of it, God is with us. As we work through Psalm 129, we're going to look at three different handles. There's a lot more we could say, but we'll look at three different handles on how to cultivate confidence in the face of opposition, how to cultivate perseverance in the face of opposition without losing your distinct Christian witness. We'll look at three things. Prayer. It is more potent than we think. No matter how strong you think it is, it is more potent than we think. We are actually tougher than we know. And the Lord is all the help we really need. Prayer is more potent than we think. 
you're actually tougher than you give yourself credit for. And the Lord is all the help we really need. And if able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is God's holy, hopeful, flawless word. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, and and what would happen in the psalm is one person started, but then the church actually joined in. So maybe we could read the rest of this together, starting with verse two. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Feel free to grab a seat. I'll mispronounce this name for sure. Pastor Lee Junsai is currently serving a prison sentence of five and a half years in China. He's been in prison for 1,286 days as of today. Here was his crime. Here's why he was arrested. He was protesting the government's attempt to just simply remove the cross from his building. Five and a half years. Zhang Wenxi also known by his Korean name and and his title as Deacon Jang, is an ethnically Korean Chinese citizen who lives in Shanghai, China. It's a a border town right right between the southern part of, or between uh, uh, North Korea and China. He's currently uh, serving a 15-year prison sentence. He was kidnapped in 2014 for crimes against North Korea. What would happen is the, the borders between North Korea and China are technically closed, but when people live close to the border, there's often, it's, it's a, you, you, you go through, you go back and forth. And so sometimes the North Korean people would cross the borders to go into China to try to sell some of their goods to actually be able to have money to go back to care for their families. And when people would come into this town where Pastor Zhang is, um, he would just show them hospitality. He would give them food. He'd give them something to drink. He'd invite them. If they were there for a few days or a week, he'd say, you can stay with me. And so that's what he did. So here's why he's in prison for 15 years. He just shows Christian hospitality. We go on and on to so many stories. If you go look at Voice of the Martyrs or read Operation World, there's so many stories like this of real brothers and real sisters around this world that are persecuted deeply for their faith in Christ. Psalm 129, in in one way, is very helpful because it wakes us up to the great afflictions that have happened to people of faith for for millennium, and it is happening right now. It's a wonderful invitation for us to to care and to pray and to be concerned, but I'm going to do something today with Psalm 29 that, that is more than alerting us to what's happening around the world. I would suggest to you that Psalm 129 also helps us prepare and engage for the things that also happen here. After all, Jesus promised this. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Maybe it doesn't feel like great affliction, but you will face 
trouble. And I'd suggest there's at least two dangers as we apply a passage like this. That if you find yourself as a North American or American Christian, is that you overstate the sort of opposition that you face. But I'd suggest you another danger is that you completely disregard it. No doubt the persecution faced by Christians over the history of the church, and no doubt in this world today, the deplorable, the deep, the violent, the extreme, is different than what you often face here. But I think it's a major disservice to act as if there's no difficulties trying to live faithfully for Christ in this part of the world. I was talking to someone before the service and I was trying to decide how many third rail issues I would step on during this message. Here's some of the opposition you might face as a Christ follower. If you're in healthcare, your healthcare provider and you're trying to provide for your patients the best healthcare that you can that honors who they are as image bearers of God. And yet the cultural pressures and ideologies that you're swimming in are constantly challenging your ability to do that. The the threats that always seem looming in the wings about the procedures you might have to perform. If you're an educator, teaching in our schools, trying to educate uh, emerging generations, I want to be careful of the language I use, but, but, but maybe at best challenge to teach things that seem to be at direct odds with the word of God and what is best for human flourishing, if maybe even coercive, what books you might have to read, what things you might have to teach. I'm not filling in all the blanks. You fill in the blanks for you. How about Business. You're in the work world and different policies and agendas get pushed and and what it means to be an advocate. And oh goodness, we should be advocates for for those that are downtrodden and marginalized. But oh, there's so much friction and tension about what colors do you fly? What does your email signature say? I'm pulling these from real conversations with real people in the church trying to navigate what it looks like to faithfully love Jesus in a world that doesn't seem to always love Jesus. How about this, a a football coach that gets fired for simply praying after a game. Bakers and florists that have to decide if they're going to keep their businesses open for the pressures they feel to do things that they don't that they feel contradict their deeply held beliefs. I I know this is another big hot button issue. Pro-life advocates repeatedly imprisoned and maligned and birth centers attacked and targeted. When I worked construction, when I was in college, um, I was always picking up work and, and most, most of it, most of the crews I was with, it was just, you know, subtle mockeries and, and subtle disdain. And then every now and then not so subtle because they knew I loved Jesus and I would read my Bible every morning before I'd show up and they would crack little jokes. But, but just things like this, they, they began to plaster the inside of the porta potties with pornography. And they'd be like, hey, Rob, go get, I need you to get this tool. And they would have snuck dirty magazines into them. So I'd have to open up and, and have to go through this process. We'd be driving back from a side and stop at a strip club and, and, and challenge me to come in with them. 
You know, ask any high school student that's part of our church how, how, what it's like to carry their faith in the hallways of their school. I was listening to the Joe Rogan uh, podcast. Um, don't, I don't know how I started listening to it, so no judgment. And if, if you know it, then you can't judge me because you've listened to it. And if you don't, don't Google it. But so, so Joe Rogan, he's having this, he's doing this podcast with um, the guy who, who directs the Babylon Bee, which is like a Christian satire site, basically kind of mocks everything they think is nonsense. And so they have this three-hour conversation, weaving in and out of a ton of different topics. But one of the things Joe Rogan said, who, who is for sure self profess not a Christian. He's just like, you know, it's interesting to me. It feels like in America, the religion that's the easiest to mock and the most acceptable to mock is Christianity. And I would say it's true. From SNL to the Simpsons, politicians, it's just easy to mock. I was talking to someone else in our church and they were part of a a sensitivity training, a, a training to try to help us be really measured with our words, which is, oh, so important. Oh my goodness. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And all these things that were being presented, but one of the things the presenter continued to do was to actually use the name of Jesus in vain with no flinch, with no regard, with no concern, with no care, and no one spoke up. I encourage you, if you don't believe me, test this out. Next time, if you're a Christian, you find yourself in an environment that is saying something that, that is bristling against the word of God, just be 100% honest in that environment and see what happens. So what do you do with this? What do you do with the affliction? That word can also mean oppression or, or, or difficulty. What do you do with it? With those, as this text says down in verse five, those who hate Zion, those who hate the church, those that hate the things of God. All right, again, don't overstate it. Maybe some of you feel like I've overstated it already. Don't, don't minimize it. Maybe some of you think I'm minimizing it. But what do you do in this challenge of living for Jesus? And I think the imagery actually of this psalm is, is really helpful and it's really powerful. These, the, the plowers, they, they plow these long furrows on the back of this person. And it's like when you go out in the county and these massive machines, they till up the earth and they cut the soil. And then behind, they leave these long rows. That's the sort of language of this and, and this plowing. I think the, the idea is this sort of oppression. It's painful. It's, it's, it hurts. But the reason you also plow isn't to hurt the, the soil. It's actually to get it ready to plant something. These people that hate Zion, as they, they begin to, to, to prepare in, in order to plant, to, to try to, to plant a, 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 a rejection of God or a disbelief in God or to, to plant a, 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 a anger, to plant fear, to plant anxiety, to say your God won't win and your agenda won't win and what you believe won't keep going. But I think God wants to do something different with this, with this opposition, these struggles we face. You know, a question you might ask is, how do you not grow a crop in, in a world that seems bent against the things that, if you're a Christ follower, are most deeply held to you? How do you, how do you grow a crop not of fear and anxiety and outrage and canceling and deconversion and ungodly rage? Let me give you an answer that will likely feel like, what is going on? What do you do when the oppression comes? What do you do? There's a lot of things you can do, but do this. Get angry. Get angry. 
Deacon Jane's imprisonment, his wrongful, despicable imprisonment, oh, it should make us sad. It should make us weep. It mobilizes us to some action. Somebody just gave someone a cup of water. Now he's in prison. It should make you angry. I love how Ray Ortland says in his blog post, do not trust your anger. Very helpful blog post. I encourage reading the whole thing. He says this, but what if we never got angry? What would that say about us? What if we could see Jesus trivialized, the gospel denied, people oppressed, women degraded, children abused, lies popularized, injustice strengthened, and so forth? What if we looked at all of that and felt Nothing. How dead would we be inside? Anger is a judging emotion. It is a deeply felt response to wrong. No surprise then that God gets angry and Jesus got angry. And as we follow him, we will get angry too. This psalmist is from the time I was a little kid and the whole, whole church chimes in, but he's saying, it's like this has just been our lot in life is to get pushed around. We're tired. It hurts. We're angry. And we'll see that worked out in the prayer that comes. But let me finish the line. Because we do a lot of dumb stuff with our anger, let me add what the New Testament adds to be angry. Be angry and do not, help me finish it. Sin. Be angry and do not sin. Ray Orland says it like this, but unlike our Lord, when we get angry, we can corrupt it. We can complicate our anger with selfishness, wounded pride, impatience, lust for revenge, plus a lot more, and without even realizing it. So what do you do with the afflictions? What do you do with the struggle, the insults, the concern? What do you do with the anger that, that, that begins to well up? Well, let me tell you what I think and, and why I'm so grateful for a text like this and the opportunity to actually talk about this. Here's, here's what I think the American church has done far too often. Here's what we do as Christians. Here's what we've been doing as Christians when we get bent out of shape and angry and perhaps even over righteous reasons. You know, what we, you know where we take our anger? Facebook. And TikTok. And Instagram. Or we storm the nation's capital with cross flags behind our backs. Or we show up at a school board meeting so heated and so hot and so filled with venom. Shai Lennon in his book, The New Reformation, says this, we have no right to cast aside the fruit of the Spirit in the name of truth. Oh, there are things to be angry about. But we don't get to cast aside love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in the name of those things. And what I love is that this text actually offers a different way that I think if we would engage with more, might help us do something with the sometimes very right anger that you feel with getting stomped on, or maybe more to the point of this case, our Lord getting stomped on. Be angry, don't sin. So what do you do? Pray. You pray. That's verse five. Verse five and following. This is, this is a prayer. It's actually what's known as an imprecatory prayer. It's a, it's, a, it's a prayer that God's enemies won't win. That the agendas bent against the kingdom of Christ will come to naught. 
It's a prayer. It's praying that God's angel that there be no honor. May all who hate Zion be put to shame, that they be turned backwards, that they be like grass on the, the rooftop, that their roots wouldn't go deep enough to ever produce any sort of lasting legacy or impact. They'd have no honor. They'd have no success. This is a, uh, we might call this like a stop them sort of prayer. Would you stop them? And it can sometimes give a healthy, helpful outlet for the sometimes right anger at abuse and injustice and ridiculous policies that harm people and ideologies. And it gives us something better to do with anger. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, says it like this. For who does not experience flashes of anger at those who make our way difficult? There are times in the long obedience of Christian discipleship when we get tired and fatigue draws out our, our temper short. We will not learn by swallowing our sense of outrage or excusing all wickedness as neurosis. We will do it by offering up our anger to God who trains us in creative love. You know, God, would you stop them? And then go love your enemies. Go love God's enemies. God, would you stop them? And then go serve your neighbors. I love how John Tweeddale says it in his uh, post, Can I Pray in Precatory Prayers? As Christians, we long for God's kingdom to come. We yearn for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying the imprecatory psalms is not a call to arms. Listen to this. It's not a call to arms, but a call to faith. We lift our voices, not our swords, as we pray for God either to convert or curse the enemies of Christ and his kingdom. We can do something better. Just like the psalmist, they're they're hurt, they're wounded, they're tired of God being mocked and dishonored amongst the nations. They're tired of their cities being ruined. They're tired of their friends being, they're they're fatigued and tired. They're they're hurting and they're angry. And what what this person does is say, God, would you bring the things that are against you to not? Would you end them? Would you stop them? Prayer is more potent than we think. Carl Barth actually says it like this. He says, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the present disorders of this age. That it does something, that it acts, that it moves. Perhaps it keeps us from doing dumb stuff. We pray. We're also given something else to do with it. So prayer is more potent than we think. Let me give you another point, though. Um, That was point one. Um, So we'll go to point two now. But these will be shorter points. Um, In the midst of this, you're actually tougher than you know. I love verse two. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Oh, they've been beating me up. They've been knocking me down, but they'll never knock me out. They'll never knock the church of Christ out. One of my favorite, uh, favorite plants in my garden is uh, something called Rubecchia or black-eyed Susan. It's what's known as a perennial. So it comes back year after year. And I love this plant because after the winter and the snow melts, the, the spots where it is, it's just dry uh, or it's just barren dirt. There's nothing there. It dies back all the way. But under, just underneath the surface, there's this whole root system that's just waiting for a little bit of warmth. 
And as the sun starts to appear a little more often and the ground begins to heat up, then out of this spot, there emerges just these little glimmers of the corners of, of green leaves. And as they get nurtured and fed by the sun and it warms and it gets watered, it begins to grow and grow. And it's been there now for a number of years and its system is strong and big and it's grown and it, it begins to, it sprouts up and it gets higher and then out of it become these shoots with these little buds on them and they're plentiful. There's thousands of them in this plant. And then eventually in the middle of the summer, they give birth to these really dazzling, deep yellow flowers with, the, with black centers. I just think they're amazing. That no matter how severe the winter, the winter doesn't take them. The cold doesn't take them. The neighbor kids running through my yard doesn't take them. I love Eugene Peterson. He picks up on this in his book, Along Obedience, in the same direction. He says, the people of God are tough. For long centuries, those who belong to the Lord have waged war against the way, for the centuries, those who have belonged to the way of the world have waged war against the way of faith, and they have yet to win. Christian faith needs to be tough as a perennial. They can stick it out through storm and drought. Survive the trampling of careless feet and the attack of vandals. The person of true faith outlasts all the oppressors. Faith lasts. Oh, greatly they've afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The people of God are tough, but I want you to hear this clearly as we talk about a text like this and get angry and don't sin and we engage with our communities. The people of God are tough, but they're not bullies. They're not bullies. 16th century Christian reformer Theodore um, Beza who's meeting with the king of Navarre. And this is a very arduous, a very difficult, a very precarious time to be a, a Christ follower as one of these Protestant reformers, a time of a lot of violence, a lot of threats, and a lot of attacks. It'd be all the reason is the church to lash out. But here's what he says. Sire, it is not the lot of the church of God. It is the lot of the church of God to endure blows and not to inflict them. But may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Oh, the church is going to take punches over and over. We're not going to throw them. We're not going to retaliate. But oh, I want you to remember the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Oh, those nations that stood against Christ. Where are they? They were so grand and great empires over continents. Where are they? Verses five through eight aren't just a prayer. They're actually a prophecy. They're a declaration of what will happen. Every cause that stands against Christ will one day come to nothing. Doesn't matter how much they're against Zion, against Jesus, against the church. They won't win every kingdom, every country, every rule, every policy, every politician, every ideology, every curriculum, every organization, anything that is set against Christ. This text is saying they won't win. They'll be put to shame. They'll be like grass. And when you know this, it, it allows you to navigate with a type of perseverance that doesn't turn us violent and vengeful. We do something better with our anger than that. And then we go love as Christ called us, those who persecute. We bless and we befriend our enemies. People of God are tough. They're not bullies. One of the things that's amazing too is the people of God actually get stronger because of the adversity. One of the things I think is really unfortunate in our culture, and it seems to be pretty predominant right now, is this 
thought that you're really fragile. Kelly Capick in his book, You're Only Human, has, a, I think, a wonderful insight. And I'll try to unpack this, so stay with me. He would say, we're not fragile, we're vulnerable. There's a lot of things that can hurt us and harm us and take us out, but we're actually not fragile. Human beings are actually remarkably resilient. We face viruses and create antibodies. We raise difficulties and abuse and create flourishing. So he'd say, we're, we're actually resilient, we're robust. And then he would actually go on in the book and say, You're, we're not fragile, we're actually anti-fragile. We're actually anti-fragile. That phrase comes from Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. And he uses that to describe organizations and, and, and people that actually benefit from the unexpected and the challenges and the difficulty, that the, the things that are tough, they don't just make it through, they actually get better as a result. One of the ways we see this is like if you work out, if you lift weights, you're actually creating little micro traumas on your body that heal and you get stronger, that we're made to be anti-fragile. Christianity is an anti-fragile faith. God designed the adversity to actually strengthen you and to spread the gospel. I'll illustrate like this. I was looking at uh, Operation World. Great resource, great prayer guide if you're interested in praying for un- unengaged, unreached people group. Um, but they asked this question. They said, do you know where, uh, where, like what country in the world has the fastest growing church? So I'd ask that question. If anyone in the room know it, where is the fastest growing church in the world right now? Christian church. It's actually Iran. Now we're not talking numbers, we're talking speed of growth. It's in Iran. The Iranian revolution of 1979 established a very hardline Islamic, Islamic re- regime. And over the next decades, Christians faced, I'm reading from them, increasing opposition and persecution. All the missionaries were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce. And several pastors were killed. The church came under tremendous pressure. And many feared it would soon wither away and die. But the exact opposite happened. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries. In 1979, there was an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands. Some even estimate it to be a million. Iran has the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. You know what the second fastest is? Afghanistan. You know who's leading Afghanis to Christ? Iranians. The world is going to do its worst, but it will not win. So we don't have to freak out. We don't have to fret. We don't have to worry. You don't have to get so disoriented by the policies and decisions and the directions. And, and, and you, the kingdom of God is sure. Christ is going to win. Prayer, it's more important than we think. We are tougher than we know. And here's how we know it. The Lord is all the help we really need. I skipped over this verse. It was intentional. We'll go back to it. It's the center of the psalm, but it's really the center of what makes the prayer powerful and the one that we know will act on the behalf of his own causes for his own people. Verse four, the Lord is righteous. Right decisions, right timing, always reigning, always ruling in the best way possible, although we don't understand it. 
and he has cut the cords of wickedness. He's broken the plower's plow. He's broken the chains that produce captivity. Says the Lord has acted on the behalf of his people. Eugene Peterson, again, in his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, says this. He says, the cornerstone sentence of Psalm 129 is this. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The emphasis is on his dependable personal relationship. He is always there for us. Remember that as you go into a meeting. Remember that as you turn on the news and you scroll through your news. The Lord is always there for us. That he fights for us is the reason Christians can look back over a long life crisscrossed with cruelties, unannounced tragedies, unexplained setbacks, sufferings, disappointments, depressions, and see it all as a road of blessing. The central reality for Christians is the personal, unalterable, persevering commitment God makes to us. At the end of the day, our perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is a result of God's faithfulness. Personal, unalterable, persevering commitment God makes to us. Church, the, the best place, the clearest place we see that is in the giving of Christ in the gospel. Personal, unalterable, persevering commitment that God so wanted to transform this world of darkness and wickedness and ridiculousness that he came into it. Of all the people that could actually pray Psalm 129, it's Christ. Greatly have they afflicted me. Greatly have they oppressed. We're told that Jesus was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, that he knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to to have friends ignore and distance. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused by family. He knows what it's like to be stepped over. He knows what it's like to be mocked for his belief and his faith. He knows what it's like to be treated unjustly by the governmental powers of the time. As he was abducted at night, carried into a mock trial, treated needlessly, harshly abused. He knows what it's like. They made long their furrows. Oh, he was scourged. And he was whipped. He was wounded. Ultimately, he was pierced. But in the doing, all those that hate Zion, you know what they were doing is actually bringing the inauguration of the kingdom of Christ that will one day fill the entire cosmos. For by his wounds we are healed. See, it's out of those afflictions in which we find our justification, our forgiveness before a righteous God. Yet they have not prevailed against me. Oh, who else could say it but Christ, who, was def- who looked like he was seemingly defeated on the cross. His darkness came over the land. His, his death settled in. It looked like full defeat, but it was at the cross where he triumphed over all of the powers and principalities that stand against the kingdom of the beloved Son where our forgiveness was purchased, where where the enemy was defanged. And as he went in the tomb and it felt like darkness won, three days later he rose up to say, oh, there is a resurrection coming. There is new life coming. Death can't keep me. It can't keep anyone that's mine. I win. Right now he's reigning and ruling in heaven, awaiting his return. Great afflictions, but Christ is still standing They can't stop Christ. 
The cross couldn't stop him. It brought salvation for all who would trust. The grave couldn't stop him. It justified our forgiveness and reminded us that death won't win. The empires couldn't stop him. Oh, he subverted it. He flipped it. They, he took the, the tool of, of, of oppression and turned it into the object of our worship. Christ can't be stopped. His kingdom can't be stopped. His church will never be snuffed out. What are we worried about? Success is guaranteed, and we may struggle now, and oppression may come. Difficulty may come. We know for our brothers and sisters around the world, it is so real for them. But they can't stop Christ. Carry this into this week. They can't stop Christ, so they can't stop his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a a gift of a text and what a challenge in how to internalize in our lives based upon the vantage points at which we bring to it. God, we want to confess so often that those in the name of Christ pick up swords instead of get on their knees and pray. Whether it's the sword of their words, the sword of their fists, the sword of their intimidation. And while some of us might relate to some of the anger and frustration and confusion, God, guard us from that path. Help us to just call out, would you save? And would you stop all the things that are dishonoring to you, including in our own hearts, in our own lives? And really what we're praying is just what Christ, you told us to, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.